Amen. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my Savior, my Rock and Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, all saints. Well, it is wonderful to be with you all. I've had a run through already, so I do know that you all can actually speak back to me if you want. It will actually allow for the preaching moment to move forth rather even more quickly. Let's put it that way. As uh, Reverend Simon and I discussed before my coming, he said, now you do know our preaching time is a little bit more limited than what you're used to. And I said, I understand. <laughs> you can be eternal without being everlasting. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to be here with you all today. I, I thank you for your warm welcome and hospitality and walking me clumsily through um, the wonderful and beautiful liturgy of this worship service. And thanks also to Reverend Kim and Reverend Timothy and to all of you all who I've had the wonderful pleasure of meeting and to many more who I hope to meet after this sermon and this service today. This morning, I'd also like to recognize the singing sisters who have been here before me. <laughs> Under... Wonderful. Under the, the wonderful ministry leadership of Laura English Robinson, they make this feel like home away from home. Thank you all. I see some other Ebenezer folks in the, in the congregation, Deacon Jacqueline Lott Jackson and Sister Angela and Imara and many others. I would just like for my family to wave their hands. My husband, Corey Rice, our sons, Caleb and Malachi and Caleb's best buddy, Corell. All right. Many other friends in, in the congregation, and today I would like to call you all my friends. So wonderful being here. I'd like to read a few verses and then have us reflect on this question. How are you known? John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. Jesus says to his disciples, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How are you known? That is really a question of reputation. What is your reputation? good or bad? What are you known by? On the eve of Jesus's crucifixion, after the wonderful witness of a servant leader, he washed the feet of all of his disciples. Even when some protested, he said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you cannot be with me. Even in that moment, Jesus has washed their feet. He's on the eve of his crucifixion and he has the last Passover. And during the course of the last Passover feast, Jesus' conversation includes identifying who his great fatal betrayer will be. And he moves through the meal, and after the meal, he then points out to Peter, the passionate disciple, that he too will betray him three times. And sandwiched between the conversation of betrayal, Jesus pauses and says to his disciples, just as I have loved you, 
you should also love one another. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, because of that love, will others know you as my disciples? It's as if Jesus knew in the midst of all of this, they had no idea Judas had gone out and was preparing for his great dramatic betrayal. Jesus knew that they were on the brink of entering into some hard times, some dark days, some some doubtful moments. The one who came and 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 was proclaiming this great hope was now going to be killed. He, he were on the eve of a dark crucifixion. And in the moment of all of that, in the midst of that conversation, Jesus says that they are to love one another. Now, the commandment to love is not new. Earlier on in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells them of the first and great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he follows along that first and great commandment with the second commandment, that you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But what makes this commandment new is that Jesus provides a motive. He not only says that you're to love your neighbor and to love one another, but he says you're to love them as I have also loved you. There's a new motive in that love. It's There's a new witness in that love. It's a love that Jesus has shown and has given his life for. He says that if we, the corollary and the, the, the converse to that is if we do not love one another as Jesus has loved us, then we are not his disciples. So I ask you today, how are you known? In this text today, the love that Jesus talks about is the agape love. Is our church today known by this love? What is our church, capital C church, not just all saints, but the, the church universal. What is the church known by? Is it known by its hope or its faith? Is it known by this type of love that Jesus talks about? In a report by the Brookings Institute where they analyzed the role of faith in the fight for equality, they highlighted the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life's study that pointed out what many of us have heard through the last few years, that there is an ever-growing group of nuns not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, those who do not have a religious affiliation. There's an ever-growing group, especially within our millennial generation, of those who are religiously unaffiliated. That in and of itself is is a, a stark reminder to us as a church that we've got to do more to be a witness of God's love, a witness of God's giving and hope and faith and and a witness of all that God represents to us and our our readings and our prayers and our actions. But I'm more interested in why. Why is there this ever-growing group, this this larger group of millennials and others who are identifying as religiously unaffiliated? The story points to a few factors, and the research points to a few factors, such as the marriage of religion and partisan politics. The study also points to the fact that many see religious leaders as having a primarily worldly agenda. They see that religious leaders, in their opinion, are more concerned with money and power than they are with truth and spirituality. They now see churches and religious people 
that tend to be more hypocritical and judgmental rather than sincere and compassionate and forgiving. Those that check the box for religiously unaffiliated look at the church as something other than what Jesus is calling the church to be in these few verses that I've just read from the book of John. It's important to note that there will always be naysayers and critics of the church. But I do think that we need to be aware of how we, the church, are perceived and how we are known. I think that if I were to ask a handful of you in here if you've ever been offended or hurt by something that someone said in the church, you might even wave your hands. But then if I also ask if you're willing to be honest, have you also said some things and done some things that others might be offended by and might think that you, as a representative of the Christian community, have offended the very Christianity that you claim to uphold. Even Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Those of us who have experienced hurt at the hands or the mouths of someone who professes to be a Christian may shake their heads in agreement with this statement, but it is important that we do not stop the analysis there. A pastor of a church that I used to attend said that if you don't want to join a church because you think it's full of hypocrites, then when you join, there'll just be one more. <laughs> it sounds harsh, but really, what it really points to is the fact that all of us are imperfect. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have made mistakes. And if all of us are the church, then guess what? The church is imperfect. But what it really points to is the fact that we need God. We need Jesus Christ to witness and to speak and to issue forth not just these words to his disciples, but those words echo down through the generations to remind us of why we do what we do. With all that is going on today in the public space and the political discourse and looking even within our own city and the fact that there is such a divide between the haves and the have-nots, the gap of inequality between the wealthy and the poor in Atlanta is one of the highest of any city in this country. When we look at the housing, the affordable housing crisis and the fact that there are so many who are left without, who need decent and affordable housing options, when we look at the educational disparities, even with our, within our city on the north side and the south side, even within the same school district, when we look at all the issues that have bubbled up with the criminal justice system and, and the disparity within how people are convicted and for what they're convicted for, we have got to be honest with ourselves in realizing that we are in the midst of a love crisis. When the language of the very top leadership of this country speaks with such venom, we have got to admit that we as a country, as a people, as a community are in the midst of a love crisis. But this again is not new. For Paul, in the first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 13 of that letter, writes a letter on love to the Corinthian church, who in and of itself is in the midst of a love crisis. The Corinthian church was struggling with jealousy, divisiveness, strife, sexual immorality, fighting, and foolishness. 
Paul directly addresses many of these delicate situations in his letter in 1 Corinthians where he writes about love. Seems so basic to talk about love. I mean, we we say it all the time. We have songs about it. We have cards about it. We we wax poetically about it. Roses are red, violets are blue. I love you, don't you love me too? We have trite sayings about it, but love is truthfully more than a Valentine's Day card and a word that we throw out. It, in many instances, has been overrated and underrated at the same time. So I ask that you would listen in with me just for a few more minutes as we talk about love. In the letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about a love known as agape love, not eros, which is the romantic love, not philos, which is brotherly and sisterly love, but agape love. This is a love that has no end and has no beginning. This is the love that's the everlasting love of God that Jeremiah talks about. This is a love that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is a love where God was willing to lay down his life, that we might have life and have that life more abundantly. This is a love that has no conditions. It's a love that is there when you're on your best behavior, and it's a love that is there for you when you have done grievous misdeeds. It's a a love that God loves with. This agape love is a love that undergirds some of life's most tragic moments and celebrates at some of life's most great greatest highs. This love that we know as agape love is a, a love, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that is not an action and it is not natural. It's essential to the life of one who follows God. He says that in this this type of love, it's always kind and it always protects and it always rejoices with truth. It always trusts and it always perseveres and it never fails. He says that even if you have tremendous faith, even if you martyr yourself, even if you give all that you possess and don't have love, It is meaningless. What are we showing our children about love today? What love legacies are we leaving for them? Jesus tells his disciples in these few verses that they are to love one another. In the first John 4, in in that epistle, Paul, the writer of first John, says that God is love and those who abide in love abide in God. He then goes on to say, how can you say you love me whom you don't see and yet not love your brother or your sister whom you see every day? In order for us to truly understand this commandment of Jesus to love one another, we have to acknowledge the one anotherness of our very faith. It is important to note that the cross is vertical, our relationship with God, us and God. But the cross is also horizontal, our relationship with one another. Our one anotherness is tied up even in our own personal forgiveness. Lord, forgive my sins as I forgive the sins of others, which we repeat when we say the Lord's Prayer. Our love of one another is tied up in our relationship and love with God. God says, beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought also love one another. Our worship is tied up in our one anotherness. 
It says in the, in the gospels that when we bring our sacrifice to God, God says, if you have not yet reconciled with your brother or your sister, leave your sacrifice here, go reconcile and then come back to me. Our one anotherness is tied up in our very healing. In second Chronicles seven, the writer says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways and pray together. I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Our faith is based on a one anotherness understanding. Therefore, our love is linked to how we treat one another, our faith, our discipleship, our identity, our mark as Christians is tied up in how we love one another. This love, this agape love is not an easy love. It's actually very difficult because it calls us to love the unlovable. Anybody know some unlovables? It calls us to love in spite of it calls us to step outside of our comfort zone and to love and to listen and to hear and to help and to advocate for someone we don't necessarily even like. But imagine that when you were at your worst, Jesus came and died for you because he loved you so very much. This love, this agape love, must also be expressed in our everyday lives, not just discussed while we're here in the sanctuary. Cornel West says that justice is what love looks like in public. In our everyday life, it, it must be evident, we must be known by this love of one another. I think more people do a better job explaining away why we can't love someone rather than working to actually love them. In April of 1963, Dr. King wrote in a jail cell the letter from the Birmingham jail, not just to anyone, but to white clergy in Birmingham, Alabama, explaining to them why he was there fighting against unjust laws and calling on their very faith. He says to them, after they said that he was an outside agitator, that he was an other, that he had no business in Birmingham. He says, I'm cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, for we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny where whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. The clergy then tried to characterize King as an extremist. They said, you know, we know that there are unjust laws and injustices taking place, but let the courts handle it. Don't march on the streets. Don't get extreme with it. Just wait and bide your time. But this love that King was imbued with had a fierce urgency of now. And he said, they tried to characterize me as an extremist. And King said initially he took pause, but then he became more and more satisfied with that label. Because he says in his letter, was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. An extremist for love. How are you known? 
So the question, King says, is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. We, we, will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, Dr. King says, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, for truth, and for goodness. And therefore, therefore he rose above his environment. I dare say today that we as a church, as a city, as a country, are in dire need of extremists for love. Finally, I conclude with the very same question that I began with. How are you known? Even Jesus asked his disciples, whom do men say that I am? Dr. King said, when they ask who I am, if they say I'm a drum major, tell them I'm a drum major for justice. Justice is love in public spaces. Our love is our saltiness. Our love is our brand. Our love is our very identity. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. So now, God, search out our path and our lying down and the one who is acquainted with all of our ways. Search our hearts, oh, God. Help to cast out hate. Help to cast out negativity. Cleanse our hearts and our spirits and allow us to make more room for this amazing love that you have given to us so freely. Help us to become love extremists that we may be known by our love for what the world truly needs now is love, sweet love. In the name of the one who loved us to life, we pray. Amen.